everyone, and welcome back to The Display Show. My name is Brian Berkeley. As a past president of SID, I'm your host for interactive discussions as we have conversations with key display industry leaders and influencers. Today's guest is Regis McKenna, who is head of Regis McKenna Incorporated. You know, for many or most of us, Regis needs no introduction at all. He is well known for his vast marketing and public relations expertise, as well as his high profile contributions to major corporations here in Silicon Valley. Just to name a few, he helped Intel market the world's first microprocessor. He guided Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, and other Apple executives through Apple's formation and growth phases. And he helped Genentech roll out their first recombinant DNA genetically engineered product. Other companies who turned to Regis for his marketing and PR expertise included Electronic Arts, Compaq, Microsoft, National Semiconductor, Spectrophysics, Silicon Graphics, 3Com, and a host of others. Among various companies he advises today, he is board member of Nanasys, who is sponsoring these talks. Regis has received many awards, and it is safe to say that he is a major part of Silicon Valley folklore. Regis, thanks so much for being here with us today. You're welcome, Brian. You know, it's, it's hard to know where to begin. Maybe we should start with General Micro. Can you tell us about them? Yeah, I, General Micro was sort of my, uh, my introduction to technology in, a, in, in any kind of depth. Um, I was actually working for a small ad agency. Uh, I had moved here from the East Coast uh, in 1963 and was working for a small ad agency and got an account called General Microelectronics, GME. And, and they were a, one of the early spinoffs of Fairchild with the intention of building MOS, that's uh, metal on, on uh, oxide, uh, on silicon. And, uh, and, you know, that, was, that hadn't been done yet, but it was a, it, it was a key breakthrough in, in probably what has allowed us to create the kind of processors and memory technology that we allow today. That's an underlying technology. You know, in, a, in effect, you were able to put down transistors, many more transistors without having to insulate every layer. Um, you got faster speed, you got low power. It offered all the benefits. And the military loved it for making lighter weight instruments, uh, particularly for rockets. Uh, and so GME was a, uh, you know, it was a relatively small company, but they, they not only grew the ingots, and polished them and, and uh, did all the surfacing and then did the, um, the, the masking and the, and the deposition and the screening. So you could walk from one end of the building to the other and see, you know, molten silicon and you could see actually finished products coming out the other end. And then they got a contract to build a, uh, in 1965, to build a calculator for Monroe, uh, Monroe Calculator Company. It was called the 3900 because it took hundreds and hundreds of, of mechanical, electromechanical components. It was able to reduce them to 39 chips, single chips. And those were, uh, th those, those were basically MOS chips. And, um, and, it, and it was successful for a very short period of time. <laughs> and the reason being that the processes were not very stable at that time, the yields were terrible. And so, you know, they sort of shipped money with every, every shipment. But, uh, but it showed what was possible using this technology. And later on, uh, the Apple II actually looked 
and felt exactly like the Monroe, the Monroe calculator, 19, of thir, uh, the 3900 uh, Monroe calculator. And not only that, but the ads that were done for the calculator and for, and for GME were uh, six color. They were the same six colors that were used in the Apple logo 10 years later. You know, um, last week when we spoke, you showed me a couple of those uh, props, uh, the general micro transistors. I, I wonder if you happen to have those uh, nearby yeah. or handy. Because the, you know what's uh, funny? I, when you showed me those, I remembered building breadboards, prototypes using single single transistor transistors. You almost have to identify yeah. them. Yeah, I don't know if you can actually even see it here because it's so, uh, uh, but um, it's, it's so small, but uh, I don't know, can you see that at all? I, I can, if you, uh, yeah, there you go, there it is, uh, in the upper right. Um, yeah. Oh my goodness. It's an epoxy transistor, um, you know, circa 63, 65. And, uh, and uh, that was really the first marketing project I had because before they could develop the, the uh, devices, the MOS devices, they were selling transistors. And, um, and as, the, as the integrated circuit came along and replaced the transistors, um, they were still making these transistors by the millions, tens of millions. And so there was an, ex you know, an excess amount of them. And one of the things GME did, we, we started getting orders from Hong Kong for bunny eyes. And, uh, and the bunny eyes, if you notice, there's two little leads, uh, copper leads coming out the bottom, and uh, actually three, and they would stick it in the, in the bunny and, and bend the lead so that they made eyes. I'm, I'm sure it didn't pass OSHA, but, but, <laughs> but at that time, you know, 50 years ago it did. So uh, bunny eyes was a big, uh, a, a big profitable item on our on our uh, on our uh, sales forecast. Well, you never know how uh, the applications will will roll out. Um, right, that's an interesting one. Uh, after General Magic, uh, you joined up with National at an early stage. So, yeah, I was uh, General uh, Micro was bought by Philco Ford back in Philadelphia, and they were moving all everything back there. So uh, I. Uh, I got a I got a call from Don Valentine, who was who had just become director of marketing at National Semiconductor, and and literally it was right across the street from GME. So I literally walked out the door across the street for my interview, um, and uh, Don and Charlie Spork, who was really the the, the founder of National, um, uh, were there, and they were there was no build no no furniture in the building. Uh, Literally nothing. They were pitching pennies against the wall, and you could hear them echo. Um, and so, um, you know, they just, they, you know, I had uh, gotten to know a lot of people at National and, or at uh, GME. And, and, of course, GME came from Fairchild, so did National. So all these people knew each other. So the reference base was very strong for me. And, um, and that would later on also help me in, in terms of uh, getting intel. Well, and, and I know that was, uh, some, that was a really big uh, move for you, and that came next. So I'm very interested to know, and I'm sure the viewers will be interested to know, how you got involved with Intel. And uh, talk to us about yeah. marketing at the company and the world's first microprocessor. Yeah, the, uh, 
the way it happened, I guess, was uh, I national really Don Valentine was a t- terrific teacher and in terms of learning marketing, and I he's. He basically said to me, you know, I don't want to see you behind your desk. I want to see you out on the road all the time, which I was. So uh, for the position that I held, I spent probably 80% of my time traveling, um, seeing customers, seeing application engineer, or uh, seeing applications in practice, um, you know, seeing distributors, uh, going with sales guys on calls, all those kinds of things. And so... Um, uh, you know, I had a fair amount of experience that by the time I was there, that would be my sem- second semiconductor company. So, um, but, and, and both of those had split out from, uh, from Fairchild. Uh, Intel, uh, how Intel, uh, I basically had set out to get them. And I had a fellow who worked for me who had worked for Bob Noyce at Fairchild. He was doing research for me. And, um, uh, I asked him if he would call Bob and set up a meeting, which he did. And, uh, and uh, well, actually, they called him first asking him to do, believe it or not, uh, plant location work, because that's what he used to do for, for noise, was plant location work. And, um, and so he told me that um, Bob had called him and asked him if he would do some, and he turned him down because he said he was now doing work for me. And I said, you call him back, and you tell him that... Um, You'll do it, but you'll do it on, uh, on one condition, and that is that he has dinner with me. And so um, we set up a dinner with uh, uh, Bob Noyce, Ed Gelbach, who was VP of Marketing, and, and myself and, and this Don Coburn. And um, we met at a restaurant, and I made a presentation to them um, about, about you know, what I had been doing and, uh, and uh, what that meant. Now, Noyce, I think, you know, he was really a visionary, and he saw, he saw things being done with a microprocessor that most people didn't back, you know, when it was just still struggling to find applications. Um, and so I think he saw that I had worked with a lot of people he knew. Um, and, in fact, Charlie Spork almost went to work for him at Intel. So did um, a, a number of people that eventually went to National. Um, and certainly at GME, we're mostly research guys. They all came out of Fairchild Research, who also worked for Bob. So they all knew each other. And so I had this great reference base uh, of people that I'd worked for for the last five, six years. And um, they were all, you know, gave me good testimonials. And, um, you know, Noyce called me the next morning and said, we'd like you to do, you know, our advertising and PR and and what marketing project, projects we had. They really didn't do much marketing then. They didn't call it marketing. It was product marketing. And, um, and, but at National, I also was product marketing for uh, manager for two, two product lines. So I had experience in that as well. So interesting to look at the Valley. And in many ways, uh, there were so many connections back then. And there still are now uh, where... You think of Silicon Valley as being giant, but uh, actually the relationships are important and um, you're never that far away uh, from being connected to uh, key people throughout the industry. The, the thing is that uh, the thing with, that, with Intel was that uh, 
we say the first microprocessor, but it really didn't make any bells or whistles out there. Um, nobody knew what a microprocessor was or what it was for or how you use it. Um, it, it really was, um, uh, you know, sort of a, uh, an infant without a mother or father. <laughs> it, it, it had a long history in technology and in theory, but it really didn't in terms of practice. And, and, uh, and so, um, People, uh, if you think about it, what, what, what changed was engineers used to design a product by, by breadboarding it first. They'd take a you know, circuit card, they'd lay all the devices down on it, whether, you know, resistors, transistors, uh, uh, capacitors, and so forth. And then they'd build, you know, they'd build a schematic, and then they built the board out of that. And then every engineer had a technicians that worked for them on the bench. And they would design this and then test the board and then do little wraparounds of, 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 of uh, copper wires on the back. And, and so it was a very complex process of getting a product to market. That, that was all done away with. You didn't need to do any component picking anymore. With the microprocessor, it was microprogramming. So you actually programmed it with software. It wasn't done through hardware. It was, it was, you know, it was done in these development tools that Intel also came out with. Uh, the intellect was the first one. And so those development tools enable engineers to sit down and, mic and put their program in, microprogram it. And, and so what needed to be done was a, an explanation of um, uh, more training and education of how to, how to apply a microprocessor, put it to use, put it, you know, what kind of applications. So well, the, the, the 4004, which was the four-bit microprocessor, came out in 1971. It wasn't until the 1983 that it took off in terms of the 8-bit the and the 16-bit when, when the IBM um, personal computer adopted the 8086, uh, 8085, actually, processor as, a, as, its, uh, pro as its processing power. So... That really took the market then grew. But up until that time, we spent 10 years trying to figure out where the market was, how to, how to sell the product, um, and obviously knowing that we had to move up the technology train in terms of 4-bit, 8-bit, 16-bit, 32-bit, so forth. So that was, the, that was the 10 years. That was part of the 10 years because Intel also made EPROMs. They made uh, uh, RAM memory. They made all kinds of other products. We probably, Intel is the most prolific technology company in terms of new products I've, I've ever seen or worked with in my life. I'll bet we did um, 50 to 100 projects a month. It was, wow. it, it was, it was really, I mean, they, they were all over by the, you know, and, they, and then we got started doing their work for Portland. We started doing their work for Europe. Um, so combining that up, they became a, a huge uh global client for us. That's a lot of products and that will keep any marketer completely busy. Uh, tell, yeah. tell us about the Intel Crush campaign. Well, uh, Intel was a bit, uh, probably uh, some hubris took over in terms of their technical snobbery and, and, and leadership. Um, <clears throat> because um, by 1979, the microprocessor, um, uh, Motorola was a competitor. And Motorola 68000 had come out. 
And that was a much better processor for, for designing, actually. I think the architecture of the 68,000 was completely different than the 8086. <clears throat> and so many of the, um, the, the new applications were using uh, the 68,000 model. And, and so Intel began losing the uh, market share rapidly, I mean, very rapidly, as these things got into production. And uh, this was in 69. Uh, no, nobody seemed to really concerned about it, but there was a sales guy in, back in Boston who sent a letter to Grove telling him what was going on, uh, literally, that if they didn't turn, if they didn't turn this around, they, we were going to be out of the microprocessor business. And so Grove formed, a, uh, got everybody together, formed a task force of, I think it was about nine or 10 people. Uh, it was product marketing managers. It was uh, Bill, De Bill Campbell. Bill Campbell, no, it was uh, before him. Um, it was uh, um, Bill Davidow. Bill Davidow was the VP of marketing. Uh, Dave House uh, was the, uh, uh, ran the, the, the marketing for the, for the processors and for memories. Uh, so they, we had enough key executives there, but um, most of it was just people from different departments of Intel. And we went to Ricky's, tied our, locked ourselves up for a week because um, the task was to come up with a strategy to beat Motorola. And, uh, and, uh, and that's, uh, that's what we did for a week. But we looked at every aspect of the company. We looked at sales, marketing, distribution, engineering, new product development, um, you know, management. Uh, so everybody in the company was engaged in this from the actually regularly presentations to the board, regular presentations to the executive staff. Uh, every Wednesday, we, we, we had a meeting with the executive staff to make a presentation on what progress we have made. Um, those, pro those meetings were then you made commitments for the following month, and then you had to come back the following month and either justify why you didn't do it or uh, give a new set of, uh, of, of goals. And it was very disciplined and, uh, and, and very concentrated. We brought everybody together that was key manager in the company um, here for a conference, sat them down, divvied, uh, divvied up tasks, and uh, everybody was off that following week uh, getting things done. And, but it was a big, big corporate-wide concerted effort and uh, allocating money, and uh, uh, and a lot of it was really done in, in, uh, at the sales level, getting the right kind of tools for the sales guys to get design wins, and and that was the whole thing. How many design wins? So we started tra tracing design wins across the spectrum of of companies, and uh, and you know when we had the majority of design wins is whenever we said, okay, we're winning. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't. It wasn't before that. Well, Intel's had a lot of marketing. I think everybody has heard of the Intel Inside campaign. I wonder if you feel that that's an example of good marketing. Um, well, <laughs> I have a problem with that. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't think so. Quite frankly, I, it's not something I did. We did do Intel's advertising. Up until I sold my business, my ad business in 1981 to Jay Shiat, and Jay Shiat picked up both Intel and Apple. He still has Apple today, or his, that agency. Um, but in any event, um, uh, Intel didn't increase their market share any. If that was the the goal, 
Intel owned 85% of the of the, the microprocessor market simply because they were designed into the IBM uh, PC, and the PC owned 80% of the market. And uh, so Intel's share of that marketplace went with the PC. And um, so it didn't increase market share. What it, what, what it was intended to do was to support the retailers. Now, what I felt it did, though, is it commoditized the, PO, the, the, um, uh, the, the processor market. Uh, it brought prices down drastically because if you went into a computer store and looked at all the PCs on the, on the shelf, <clears throat> every one of them said Intel inside. So there was really no differentiation between any of those products. The only one that was selling distinctively was Apple because it didn't have Intel. So I thought we ought to put in on Intel, Intel not inside. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, Apple is something that you and I have in common, actually. I I worked at Apple for uh, 20 years, uh, including um, running the display activity at Apple. A lot of folks watching this are interested in displays. Now, yeah. you had worked with Apple from the very, very early days, starting in 1976, before the company was even incorporated, let alone right. public. Uh, and I, I guess I'd like to know, and I am sure that others would like to know, how you met Steve Jobs, and if you could relate a story or two about those startup days at, at Apple. Yeah, uh, well, it's it's sort of easy. Uh, Steve called Intel. Um, Steve was a you know was much he was born and raised in, in in Mountain View, and so he lived in this area. He knew all the high tech companies. His neighbors were all worked in these high tech companies, so he was very familiar. Uh, you know, even by the time he was a, a teenager in, in in high school, he was and in, in belonging to the computer club. He he knew what was going on, and so he basically called Intel. And um, and and ask who was doing their you know marketing work, and they they referred him to me. Um, Steve, uh, I you know we we were up to our eyeballs in business at that time, and so um, we we screened our clients pretty carefully. We got criticized highly for doing that, but quite frankly, you know, we, all you have is your talent, and and hiring good talent fast enough. We, we just couldn't do. Um, after all, Palo Alto is not the mecca of advertising and PR. Um, and so getting good people to move here was difficult. Um, and so um, what happened was um, Steve came and I finally agreed to see him. Him and was, uh, they had an article they wanted published in Byte Magazine. And, um, and I, always, I knew the publisher of, of Byte Magazine. I always said, arguments with him over the fact that it was, it was talking, you know, it was engineers talking to engineers and not engineers talking to consumers. And if they really wanted to get their product in, in, in that world moving, they had to reach into the consumer world. And, um, and so, um, I, I told, uh, Wozniak that I'd have to rewrite his article. So that it made sense. And, um, he, he didn't like that at all. He got really kind of pissed off at me. And so I just shook threw my hands up and said, you know, if you think we're going to do a, a one shot something, you're crazy. I mean, it's just you're not going to you're not going to succeed by running an article in a magazine, you know, and try to sell your product. He was right. The article was on the Apple II. 
and it had not, it hadn't actually, they were in, they hadn't even completed the design yet. And so, um, but, uh, so I told them that they could go. So they left, but Steve called me back. Uh, and Steve will call you back a thousand times if you don't return. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. If you don't return his call. And, uh, so he and I spent some time just he and I together and, um, and we got along really, really well. The whole idea of trying to build a long-range strategic program that involved, again, everything in the company and, and not just simply, you know, run some ads or run an article, but to, to, to build a whole kind of philosophy and culture around, you know, the, the, um, the Apple business. And, um, and that's what um, we talked about. And that's what, um, by and large, uh, we did. Uh, was to build sort of this, uh, I want to I say mythological, but it was, a, you know, it, it, it had the perfect story, you know, two dropouts. Um, this was a time whenever most American consumer electronic companies had, been, had gone out of business due to foreign competition, you know, the, the Japanese and the Taiwanese and so forth had really taken over the, the, the tape recorder, the game machine market, all the kinds of things that come out Boom, it was gone almost immediately. Well, what happened <clears throat> was that Apple became a bright spot. I mean, having a computer in a home, nobody knew quite what that meant at the time, but they knew it sounded good, and, and everybody probably said, wow, I'd like to have one of those. Um, and that was, that was our intent. And that's why we did a different kind of logo, was because the tradition, you know, I looked at IBM's logo, and I looked at all the other computer companies' logos, they were black and white. They looked like a piece of rock stone, you know, and I think they wanted it to be like that. But in fact, this was a new generation. This was, uh, this was, these people really came out of the, out of the, the hippie psychedelic world. And so these, the, the ad, the Apple really took on those psychedelic colors. And the illustrator was a guy named Tom Kamafuji who did a lot of posters and won a lot of awards on his art on in psychedelic art. And so he was the guy who actually stripped in the colors uh, in, into the logo. And, and I think that's made it. And it made it, it certainly made it different. Hey, I brought a, I brought a prop for you here. Um, Did you? Yeah. I don't know if you can see this. Oh, uh, yes. Sure. Yeah, here we go. Uh, there it <laughs> that's, is. That's my uh, business card from, uh, this is an old business card because they, yeah, they changed the logo. Old. But uh, I thought you'd be amused at least to see uh uh, that logo and and that was created right there uh, in your house, right? Isn't that? It, it was you know it was created at my company. There was a guy named uh, um, uh, oh what was his name? Uh, forget his name now. But I had a I had a bunch of designers that worked for me, and um, uh, and and you know they worked on it, and uh, but I sold it to Steve on my kitchen table. Yeah, uh, in this house. Yeah. Oh, okay, so. This logo, uh, you convinced Steve to use it in the next room over, over at your place then. Yeah. And what, I mean, he was over here all the time. I, you know, he'd come over here on his Harley all the time. He, knew, he knows all my kids. He knew all my kids. He knew our family. You know, they kind of grew up with them. Um, and uh, they even went to the same high school he went to and so forth. So, um, you know, uh, Steve and Waz, in fact, Waz's parents we knew quite well. Um, they lived in a neighborhood, and um, and so, and, and so um, 
the only thing that Steve wanted to do was to make sure that if we printed it on metal, you could get the registration because you had to run it through the printing press several times. You know, it, it, printing presses couldn't handle the number of colors necessary. They, you know, they do black or white, or then they do, you know, the primary colors, but they don't, then they blend them. But uh, to, to get those number of colors and to get it the registration right so that they don't overlap in any way, um, that, that, that meant we had to go out and get some samples, which we did. We had printed on metal for him, and, uh, and that did it. Rob Janoff is the guy who actually uh, designed the, the, the logo. He, Steve Jobs really cared about uh, the look and appearance of logos, fonts. There's a story about how he called Google up because there was a slight, I think it was the yellow wasn't quite right. And, and he actually called them up to say, look, you've got to get this fixed. He, he just had a passion for it. I, I can tell you that on the first Macintosh project, uh, which I was fortunate to work on, uh, he cared so much about the font appearance uh, and uh, every aspect of the industrial design of the product. Um, yeah. Now, back in 1985, this is a couple years after the uh, very first Mac had shipped, uh, or maybe a year and a half after, because we shipped in January of, of 84. Uh, right. I had suggested to Steve that we put color onto the Macintosh, um, and he didn't like the idea at the time. Uh, he felt that color looked bad uh, on those displays back in the mid-80s, and he also remarked that color couldn't be printed. Uh, so I'm wondering if you and Steve ever had uh, disagreements. You know, I've, I've said it, and, I'm, and I, when, when, when I read your question uh, that you had sent me, uh, I, I racked my brain, but I can't come up with a time when Steve and I had any serious shouting match or any kind of serious disagreement. No, never. And I knew him from the time he was 19 till he was, you know, till he died. And, uh, and uh, you know, we had, he would call me regularly on weekends. Uh, I knew him, I knew, you know, I, I think I knew him fairly well. He would actually call and talk to my wife first because they would talk about their families. And, uh, and, and I, and so, you know, he knew us well, we knew him well. Um, he, he was definitely a strong-minded leader with courage of convictions and- yeah. I wonder, Regis, how you went about influencing him. Um, I think the, the sort of one of the things that I would uh, constantly do is to try to uh, get um, feedback from the field, feedback from customers, feedback from dealers, distributors, and so forth. Uh, and and so I actually spent time, you know, selling Max behind a, uh, the the store counter one day, you know, for a couple of days, uh, you know learning what the experience is like and talking to people. And so I, I think it comes from really uh, uh, spending time with him. Uh, if, you, if you approached Steve um, in the right way and, and you know, without a, a, a large dis argument uh, but in suggestions and you kept it up and you had rationale and regional, re reasonable uh, argument for it, um, he would soon adopt it as his own. So, <laughs> as you probably know, yes, uh, sir. <laughs> you know, it, right? I mean, and it becomes ours, not 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 yours, not mine. And, and that's fine. I mean, I I thought that was just wonderful if I could convince him. 
I also got him involved with other people. I, I uh, um, Steve and I traveled a lot together. Um, we we visited uh, New York on numerous occasions. Always stayed at the St. Regis, uh, and uh, because there's a Maxwell Parish piece of art there that he admired, and later on I think bought some of Maxwell Parish's work. Um, and uh, so Steve was an art art uh, aficionado. He, he loved music. Um, when he bought his first house here up in Los Altos Hills, for the only thing he had in the house was a piano. It was a grand baby grand piano that he had in the in the in the living room, and uh, he would invite people he knew who played the piano to come and play. Um, and so you could sit on the floor and have a vegetarian dinner and and play the piano. <laughs> you know, he had a piano over in the original Mac building, also. This right. Was- Right. I still remember the address, 10460 Banley. It's uh, Banley 3. Yeah. And we had a, a, it wasn't just a piano, it was a Bosendorfer. Uh, beautiful instrument. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, he, he was, he, you know, um, he could recite the, the, the both, uh, you know, the Beatles songs uh, almost by heart, uh, every song. Um, and, uh, and certainly the Dylan, Bob Dylan, he, he was a, that was a, Bob Dylan was a saint to him, and so uh, you know he 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 would just in a meeting or whatever he would always say you know Bob Dylan has a song and in the song it says and he would recite the line and he's done that with the Beatles as well. He was he was uh, he loved that music. Yes. Um, hey, I have a question for you. I wonder if you happen to be wearing your uh, Apple Watch. Yes, I do. Okay. Uh, so. <laughs> so we've you, gone from got it on. one. I, my first marketing project was this, right? One, uh, and and while I didn't do any marketing on it, this Apple Watch has five billion transistors in it. That, billion. That billion with a B. Uh, that that is quite the step up uh, yeah. from the compute and, power that was in uh, the Apple II or even the original Macintosh. Um, Oh yeah, the the first microprocessor had uh, less than two thousand transistors on it, maybe fifteen hundred. So now you so, have you have a device with five billion. Uh, think about the computing power on your wrist then. Yeah, yeah, it's and in fact they can use that processor. They're using the same processor now in every, all in, in most of their devices. Um, but uh, what what is fascinating about that is when you think about the improvements in technology, the ability to do. Um, let's say, uh, 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 dynamic uh, interaction or uh, user interaction or real-time interaction or um, color, for that matter, uh, that's managed by, uh, by your device, um, that really depends upon the power of the processor and the storage. And so you can't just do one thing without a whole array of, of technologies flowing into place. So once all the sort of underlying technologies, like um, uh, particularly the, the ability to create different kinds of transistors, they make 3D transistors now, you know, they can, and they put them on sides of, a, of, of the material. And, uh, and, and so it, it creates a much denser uh, uh, device without having to increase the power or uh, or change the, or in fact, increase the performance too, because they're closer together and they, they, the speed is much faster. Well, as, as a good example of that, um, 
I, I know the guys who developed the low-temperature polyoxide display uh, that is used uh, on the more recent Apple Watches. I, I think they started using it from version 4. Uh, that's an amazing screen, and it's an example of the many technologies that flow in to uh, make a great product. Uh, those, those LTPO uh, screens enable power savings that, in turn, enables a smaller form fat factor of the device and a lot better battery life. Um, so uh, it's, it's wonderful to see the technology continue to improve. And I guess I'm wondering if you'd like to share, you, you have so much experience with, with Apple. You even came back when there was AntennaGate. I know that. Uh, would you like to share any other anecdotes about Apple or, or any other company for that matter? Well, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a miracle that Apple is there at all. I mean, it, it should have collapsed many times over the years. Oh, we um, almost did. I was there in uh, 1995, 1996, and, and uh, a lot of people don't recognize uh, how close we came to having to shut the whole operation down. Uh, it, was, yeah. it was really tough times. Well, you know, I knew, I knew the, the, the follow-on presidents after Steve left. I knew them all very well, um, you know, um, uh, and and uh, I, I I think they were they were just the wrong choices, and so I think that starting sort of at the high level down from almost the board down, I think there were some bad decisions made at Apple, um, but um, you know uh, when Steve came back, he wasn't sure that he could save it either, uh, and in fact. Uh, you know, uh, I, I have a, a phone call from him. Uh, oh, it was, I think it was early in the summer uh, of uh, 98. Uh, and he, he said he went over, you know, he had sold next to Apple, um, largely to, because the Apple was or looking for the operating system. And, uh, and so he thought that that would give him entree back into Apple. And, um, and uh, you know, incidentally, just to digress a second, um, when Steve left Apple, I tried to convince him to go back or to stay or to put off Next for a year so he wouldn't be sued. Um, and had long conversations with him and the attorneys and everybody at that time. Uh, Steve said, you know, I might be able to be a benefit to Apple where one day I might have a product that I would sell them that they could put to use. That was when he started. That was before. That was just before he had even started. Next, that happened. So, that absolutely yeah. happened. So um, you know his his getting back into Apple, but apparently he said uh, you know he said they got more PR people in there than engineers. They've got uh, 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 you know nobody seems to understand software, and he just went on and on and on complaining to me about you know all the things there, and that the the most important thing I think was that they didn't even offer him an advisory role or any kind of position there to, to help pull, you know, help integrate the product. Um, and he was willing to do that. Um, and then, you know, we didn't talk for a while and about three months later, I got a phone call from him and he said, how do you like my new board? And he meant new board of directors because in the meantime, he had not only gotten in, taken over, uh, but he created a whole new board of directors. and. Um, you know, uh, how he would do that without, he had no investment in the company. He had no major stake in the company. 
Uh, he owned no shares in the company at the time. Uh, and yet he was able to come in, uh, take it over and to, you know, turn it around basically. Though he was always unsure, or wasn't always, but he was unsure for that first probably year whether or not it would be successful. I can tell you that we absolutely would not have survived if he had not come back to the company. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's no way. Yeah. Uh, well, he had a way of really just pointing at the, the most obvious, important thing to do and do it. And then driving people to do it, to step beyond what they think, thought they could do. And what he said when he came back was that he felt that the world would be a better place with Apple in it. Uh, and that drove him uh, to revive the company that he had co-founded. Um, yeah, and he was right. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's the one company that combines, you know, sort of artistry with, with engineering. And, uh, and, and so, the, you know, Sony had been on that track, I think, but they got too rigid in their, uh, uh, in their format. And, um, and, and, you know, I had once, once talked to Steve about it, about Apple becoming the digital Sony. I also knew the people at Sony quite well. They were clients of ours as well, uh, Sony R&D. I was fortunate to meet Akio Morita. Uh, I knew Morita. Yeah, Japan Airlines Flight One, and we talked, and uh, because at that point I had integrated uh, the Trinitron yeah. uh, into Apple's uh, so. Macintosh too, and that's what made uh, enable us to make good-looking color. Oh, sure. Sure. I mean, uh, and in fact, there was a point at which um, uh, I met with Sony, um, um, uh, um, Marita had left, it was the next guy, what was his name, uh, next president of Sony. Um, anyway, um, I, I, I met with him and uh, he, they were trying to figure out that they, they wanted to build an alliance and they didn't know whether to do it in terms of with Microsoft or with Apple. And uh, it, it, it just made sense to me to tell them they should make an alliance with Apple. And um, I, I'm just surprised that Sony didn't jump at Apple uh, before Steve came back, um, you know, or other companies. There were other companies in the periphery all looking at it, but they couldn't get a definitive sort of picture of what it might be. And I think that's where Steve also added so much the value to Apple was this is what we could be, and um, and 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 then proceeded to set in a plan to do that. Steve admired uh, Apple. Um, sorry, Steve admired Sony right. for uh, the way they marketed products, but he also loved the products. Uh, he'd talk about the Walkman and how significant that was. And I think that helped him to think ahead or eventually creating the iPod. Yeah, when, when, when he and I used to go to New York, we'd always go in the Sony store and walk around and look at all the stuff. Yeah. So marketing is important. Um, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about marketing and how it differs from Marcom and advertising and just general thoughts. Uh, yeah, I, you know, my, my general thoughts on advertising is that, uh, first of all, it's overrated. <laughs> um, you know, there's there, there's so much noise level out there today, and uh, and and people really do, uh, you know, vote negative on commercials and things that interrupt their lives. Um, but um, so I've always been, you know, 
I, I was I didn't come out of an advertising world. I came out of you know basically a, a general purpose world, you know, uh, and uh, and and so the, the learning about advertising from the ground up was 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 what I had to do. And um, but I you know uh, what I found out was that or what I really learned was that um, the whole concept of PR or uh, you know getting um, journalists and editors to write stories about you uh, had a degree of credibility attached to it that your ads are never, never achieved. Um, it's like I used to quote, I used to have a foil that would quote little, little kid I heard say, Oh, you can't believe that. It's, it's just an ad, <laughs> you know? Um, and so, um, you know, and then there's this, the ad won all the awards, but the company went bankrupt. That was Apple with the 1984 ad, you know, they, they ran this, very expensive ad. They ran it one time, and um, you know, and over the next five years, Apple went into a steep decline. Um, so you know, you you've got to sort of tie this together and look at what really counts in terms of marketing. And to me, marketing is a culture. It's not a thing you do, and it's and it's actually just like quality as part of everybody's job. Everybody in the company can be you know uh, uh, part of the marketing process by how they speak about what they do, how they do their own individual job from, you know, from chairman of the board down to the, the, you know, the shipping clerk, you can do your job in a per perfect way. And, and I think that the one company that eventually came to, to harvest that idea and to put it into practice was Apple. Very few have done it uh, since then. Um, it's, it's, and it's harder to do in a company with commercial products, with you know, consumer products, I think because there's just so many different facets to it, and so many different um, places in which the customer and the and the company touch each other, um, you know, not only from service and repair, but you know, updating products every three weeks or two weeks now, whatever it is, um, all of that is a, is touching the customer, and each of those kind of op have opportunities. <laughs> for enhancing the relationship or, you know, for screwing it up. And, and I think that, um, I think Apple's the one company that goes beyond, uh, um, you know, the norm on that. What do you feel is the biggest issue in high-tech marketing today? Uh, well, the biggest issue uh, that, um, that we see arising right now, and it's largely because of the, of the, uh, the online media, is the trust. Um, you know, we don't know what to trust anymore. And of course, artificial intelligence, um, um, uh, virtual reality, all of these kinds of things are coming in now. And, and certainly, let alone with Photoshop. I mean, you know, you can, you can alter things. So people are now um, uh, skeptical about what they see and hear and, and, and even read simply because um, of the... Um, the, the, the nature of being able to manipulate media so easily and, and anyone can do it. I mean, they see, you know, mostly, you know, uh, kids in, uh, in grammar school are, are able to get in and manipulate media as, as well as, uh, you know, certainly these, the senior people who create, who do it on purpose. Um, so I think that, that trust is a, is a huge, and without trust, you, you know, you don't have a brand. Because it's it's what people keep coming back to because they trust it, 
and um, and and um, so I think that's a serious serious issue coming up in this era of twenty four seven news cycle uh, and you know misinformation and deep fakes. Uh, this is a huge huge issue uh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, somebody somebody like Apple gets linked in with, you know, every time the media talks about, uh, uh, you know, uh, Google or or Microsoft or, uh, well, no, every time they talk about uh, Facebook or, or LinkedIn or one of those uh, media companies, they, they, they refer to it as a Silicon Valley company. And they also refer, so they refer to everything that happens here as happening in Silicon Valley. So everybody's included in an umbrella. They use it as a collective noun, and it's not. There are thousands of companies in Silicon Valley, not a, only a few of which are really big companies. In fact, there's about 25 to 30 companies over, um, over, uh, over 50 billion. And um, that's, that's fairly small. Um, I'm gonna talk a little bit about displays because okay. uh, watch this is the display show many people watching are going to want to know your perspectives on displays uh, what do you think about displays as critical enablers of products well they're i mean they are they're part of this total marketing process right i mean when i say marketing i wrote an article for harvard business review back in 98 called marketing is everything and and that fits the bill because quite frankly you know you can have great information but if it's not conveyed in an interesting, um, inviting way, if you can't really decipher uh, the details of a product or a or, a, or an action on a screen, um, if it doesn't sort of arise some emotion in you, and color arises motion, we know that through many, many, many years of uh, you know uh, uh, psychological uh, investigation. Um, uh, color does emit, uh, emit emotion. And so the use of it, I think, it becomes vitally important in conveying to your customers uh, and, and to the consumers um, in general, um, um, in, you know, to inviting them in in a friendly way to, to be, be trusting. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think color is, is, is extremely important, extremely important. I'm also an amateur photographer, by the way. so. Um, and I travel around the world doing animals and things. So I, I, I do a lot of color photography. Um, well, then let's talk about color and let's talk about Nanosys itself. Uh, you're on the board of Nanosys. And so when you joined up with the company, it was working on many different applications for... Dots. And you had been one of the people to encourage Nanosys to focus on displays. Uh, so I think you just touched on these, but maybe you can go a little bit in, into more depth on your reasons for giving that direction. Yeah, um, the, the, the reason is, is if you, when, when nanotechnology came out, everybody sort of threw money at it. A lot of the venture people threw money at, nano, at uh, nanotech, and, but they really didn't know what it meant. Um, you, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of discussions about, uh, you know, how big is a nano? And, and uh, how do you compare it to other types of things like the DNA and, and so forth? Uh, it's 100, 175,000 times smaller a nano than the, than the width of a human hair, that I remember. Uh, and so, you know, these are very, very small devices. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, 
And uh, so when it first came out, but, it, but it's also uh, can be used in so many different applications. It's, it's used now uh, in, uh, in medical applications. Uh, it, 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 it's used in industry. It's used, I mean, you know, there's, you can use nanotechnology or various forms of nanotechnology. They all vary by, uh, uh, by application. But there's, there's hundreds of applications, there's thousands perhaps, of, of the application of various forms of, of nanotechnology or nano devices. And, uh, and displays was one of them. But, uh, and Nanosys was fooling around with all different kinds of industries. I mean, they were, they were talking to the military, they were talking to medical groups, they were talking. And so they had little projects in a, in, you know, uh, in a lot of different things, but weren't able to focus on any one of them. Uh, and, um, and we did have a, we had a, decided to sit down and spend a day doing nothing but uh, talking about what really should be the focus. And, and I started with the marketplace talking about, um, you know, all this information we're gathering. We're gathering more information now uh, than, uh, I don't know if you've ever uh, heard of uh, 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 Buckminster Fuller's knowledge doubling curve. But, you know, his knowledge doubling curve, you know, it's, it's we're now um, doubling the amount of total amount of information in the world. Uh, it used to happen every 50 years uh, before World War II. After World War II, it was doubling every 25 years. By the 1980s, it was doubling every 10 years. Uh, now it's down, uh, and I heard recently that they were talking about um, studies at IBM and, uh, and some of the other computer companies that the knowledge doubling curve is happening every 12 hours. Uh, and so we double the amount of knowledge, total amount of knowledge that's out there. So deciphering that knowledge, putting it to effective and, and, uh, and actually profitable use requires some discipline and focus. And so, um, you know, uh, and I've always used that sort of Buckminster, Buckminster Fuller's curve to talk about how even in a company, you can't really manage so many product lines, particularly when you're a startup. And so much of this at that time, that remember this was, uh, this was 15 years ago. Yeah, almost maybe 15, 16 years ago when they started. Uh, and they were a relatively small company. So much of nanotechnology itself was still in the research development research phase of development, not development even, you know? Uh, and so there was still a fair amount of that being done because they didn't understand the, uh, uh, they didn't actually understand the, the nature of the particles that they were dealing with. Um, and you learn that as you, you know, as uh, one professor at Stanford told me, uh, you know, technology is business you learn by doing. It's not something you sit back and study. You know, it's, it, you learn it by hands-on. And so over 15 years of working with nano devices, nanosis was really time at, that I felt that they look at focusing that energy. If you look at where are, are, is all this information heading, it's gonna be heading for somebody, somebody's screen, right? I mean, these are the windows to the world now. This is where we get our services. This is where I, actually I do, my doctor, we do you know, online um, conversations. Um, we buy, I, I do my, all my, you know, your bills, you do your, um, you, you look stuff up on, on services that you need. 
you order stuff from around the world. You do, I mean, everything you, you sort of encounter or do, you can do, you need to screen to do that. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, the, the, the intelligible information that comes through either a, a, this screen or a big screen, uh, you know, I've got giant screen in the other room, you know, that sort of thing. Um, they're, they're, um, they're, they're all necessary for us to live in today's world. And I think that, that what Nanosys needed at that time was to get rid of all these little projects, just a little bit like Steve did later on when he went into Apple and said, hey, we don't have to be doing all these things. You know, they were doing a lot of duplicate product projects and, and what they called Swiss Navy projects and so forth. And, and uh, you know, you don't need to do those. You could focus on, on simply displays and, and because everything has got to go through. And, and nanotechnology fit well with displays. It, and, and, it, and, it's, and it's progressing and evolving to actually perform better and better every year. Every year it's better. Um, I, I do want to know if you have any tips for display makers or marketers bringing these new, more immersive displays to market. You know, is this all about having a great demo or how can we tell stories that connect with consumers? Yeah, I, I got to tell you that I think that by and large, uh, I mean, you can, you can do things that, that connect it, but it never, uh, you know, the, the color never reproduces as well when you try to promote it through uh, paper. Uh, it, you know, it, it really does need the, the display itself to sell itself. Um, and, and I think that this is where people really can see the difference for yourself. And, um, and, and while people may buy things online, they generally go to, go to the store and, and look at them first. I know people do that with TVs. I know that they'll go and look at the TV in line and then they may buy it somewhere else or they may buy it uh, online. But and in fact, um, you know, they, they look at the different devices uh, in, in person. And I think that I do think that more and more demos, and so finding a way to put demos in different places like airports and and, um, and large meeting places and so forth, I think becomes really important. Um, and it's 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 sort of like Starbucks that people use Starbucks not because the coffee's that great; it's just that it's there. Uh, it, you know, you can't you you can't step 20 feet without stepping into it there. I heard last week that there's a Starbucks starting up inside another Starbucks, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, they're everywhere. And that was their intention. And I think that's really happening now. Uh, the, the, one of the growth factors for the, for the iPhone was the fact that it, it just showed up everywhere. And, and people, you know, the, every customer that used it demoed it. I'll, I'll bet there's, there's three, two to five sales for every uh, iPhone that they sell just from reference from the people that use them. And so we go back to one of these old fashioned, you know, trusting relationships is when you first started, when you first wanted to buy a personal computer, you ask somebody, what personal computer should I buy? Because you need, you didn't trust yourself to make that judgment. So now how do you trust someone else? Well, you use references and those references have to be credible. And those references have to actually stand up the, over time and, and, uh, uh, and, and in terms of quality and sustainability. So I, I think that, you know, displays, they just have to get themselves into the right places and start giving the messages through their own technologies about the quality of what they're producing. You, you said something really important, which is 
the displays are better than paper. Uh, and, and I think that's right because paper is a reflective display and it's only as good as the quality of the aluminum uh, that's right. being in the first place. Um, what do you think about the potential of uh, small companies like Anasys to disrupt the market today? Well, I think the, the, the potential for small companies to disrupt the market in almost anywhere is there uh, because they're doing it. Uh, you know, the venture capital business is still booming here. Uh, and so small companies are actually uh, disrupting things. Uh, I, I, can, I can tell you, you know, I won't mention their names, but there's, uh, and there are other fields, but certainly it's happening in the medical field. It's happening in the, uh, particularly in, uh, <coughs> in uh, real-time computing and real-time uh, analytical computing and, and AI. We're seeing lots of uh, new innovations in that area. And, and it seems to me that in the last 10 years, we've seen uh, a half a dozen different uh, platforms show up so that the, the whole computer industry itself is sort of a, a Rubik's Cube of new platforms that you sort of all put together and create uh, a, 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 a sort of a, a closed loop system with your consumer. You know, where uh, real-time analysis of the consumer's want and the need uh, back into your system and then the feedback. So uh, it seems to me that, um, you know, we're still proving that the small company can make an important statement. Regis, I want to thank you so much uh, for this valuable time uh, today. You know, being able to meet with you and speak with you, you're a legend. And so <laughs> don't, don't tell my kids that, Oh, but it's true. Uh, and uh, I'm just so grateful. Uh, and I'm sure our audience is grateful for your willingness to share time and be with us. Uh, uh, thank you so much for everything that you've done for the industry, uh, for Apple, for all of Silicon Valley and, and uh, for small companies like Nanasis. Um, it's been a real pleasure uh, to have a great. Great, great to have this chat. Take care. Thank you so much. Yeah.